0: Hey everybody, it's time to record another podcast episode. It's been a while. I thought today i talk about the variety of possible COVID strategies that a given country might adopt. Right now in Canada, in Ontario where I live, there doesn't seem to be a strategy. We sort of, you know, we lock down, cases go down, we open up the economy, cases go up, we lock down again, cases go down. That's the roller coaster, which is intolerable. I think no one will disagree that uh, that is not a fun way to be, and people lose their jobs and suffer uh, psychologically, and it doesn't make the disease go away. And we can look around other parts of the world, like uh, Australia, New Zealand, who have somehow managed to get to zero COVID cases. We look at places like Uruguay, a poor country that has managed to keep their caseload very low as well. We look at South Korea and Taiwan and Japan, who've found a way to quote unquote, live with this disease with having very low numbers and having everything open again. So how do they do it and how can we get there? So I'm hoping in the next few weeks in Canada, or at least in Ontario, we have a conversation about what is the long-term vision and strategy for allowing us to persevere through the long night because the night's going to be long, the winter is cold and dark until the bright light of the vaccine because vaccines are coming let's not forget about this we have really good data now suggesting that vaccines are going to be quite efficient effective rather okay that won't be until maybe this time next year so we have several months to wait and how do we wait well I think uh, several strategies are on the table. We have the eradication, elimination, suppression, mitigation, these circuit breakers you may have heard of. So let's go through a few of them right now. First, eradication. Can we eradicate this disease, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, this virus, from the face of the earth, released from the human population? The short answer is maybe, but it's really hard. And we haven't got a great history in our attempts to eradicate diseases. Famously, the first disease we eradicated was smallpox. And smallpox had some advantages over COVID-19 when it comes to our ability to eradicate it. So these advantages include things like, if you get it and recover, are you then immune for the rest of your life? With smallpox, that's true. You are. With uh, COVID, famously so, maybe not. We don't know. We definitely have some cases of reinfection, so definitely not everybody remains immune. It looks like antibodies start to wane after a few months, so it's unlikely that you're immune for the rest of your life. Number two, what is the natural reservoir? So that's a fancy terminology, meaning where does the disease live when it's out infecting people? So with uh, smallpox, it lives in people. So if you eliminate it from people, it can't hide in another animal and come back and bite you afterwards. Uh With other diseases like the flu often lives in birds and pigs, you know, it retreats there on off seasons and comes back and gets us uh, in the pandemic wave. So with COVID, as you probably know, it probably came from bats or some other kinds of species and we'll go back there. So, it's unlikely that this has a human reservoir and that makes it even harder to eradicate. Then eradication probably needs a good vaccine, a well-tolerated vaccine that both old people and young people can take. And that offers lifetime immunity. We don't have vaccines yet. We have a lot of candidates. None of them are being tested on the very young people under 12 years of age. And we don't know how long the immunity lasts. It probably is not lifetime. So we have none of those three advantages for COVID-19 so it seems unlikely that we'll be able to eradicate it from the face of the earth. doesn't mean we can't. I mean you could conceivably lock up the entire world for two months. So all seven billion, is it seven billion now? I can't keep track. People uh, stay in their houses for two months and then if you've got the disease you recover or die and then you open your doors and suddenly no one has it anymore. That theoretically could work, but A, no one's going to do it. B, there are going to be some outliers of people who remain infectious months afterwards. That's the nature of the the, the bell curve. The normal distribution is with a large enough uh, sample, there are going to be some people with extreme manifestations of this disease. So you're going to miss some cases and they may recede. So that probably is not a viable eradication strategy either. All of that is to say, we probably can't eradicate it, but can we eliminate it? It's a difference. Eradication is not the same as elimination. The difference is that elimination is pushing the virus out of where you live and then sealing yourself in. So you can't get it back again. This has been done many times here in Canada. The Atlantic bubble, as we call it, is kind of like an elimination environment. They have almost no cases. The cases they do have, they identify quickly and snuff out, and uh, uh, and they monitor their borders very carefully. So um, New Zealand had the elimination strategy, and they have zero cases. Australia took two shots at it. They had a really bad first wave. They had a horrible second wave. And they had a, a brutal lockdown that drove their cases to zero. And now they live in a COVID-free uh, utopia in some ways. Now, they still have restrictions uh, just announced recently that you can go to the cinema with 20 people. You can have dinner with 10 people. So they're, they're slowly opening things up because they're being understandably careful. So how do you get, uh, to the elimination position? Well, it's a lot of pain. Here in Ontario, we have now 1500 cases per day. Uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of cases. We'd need a hard lockdown, probably for six weeks we probably should have done this back in March when we were doing, you know, the lockdown. And Frankly, I kind of thought we were so naive. I am. So you lock down hard, get your cases down to zero. Then you seal the borders for anyone except the absolute essential traveler. And by essential traveler, I mean like truck drivers bringing goods across the border. And even those essential travelers, you test them on site A few times and you watch where they go because we cannot tolerate a receding event so you could do this and then you wait and you enjoy an open economy with parties and bars and and hugging random people for the months or years it takes for a vaccine to give us herd immunity right so there's the advantage short-term pain a lot of pain a six-week lockdown some expense in managing the borders and and keeping a a surveillance eye on the population, but you get months and years of an open economy. That's elimination. Frankly, I don't think we can do that. I don't think we have the political will um, or the stomach to manage an elimination strategy. That takes us to What's being talked about now, which is uh, circuit breakers. And Circuit breakers, uh, that's a term made up by advisors to the British government as a short-term lockdown. And um, they call it that because I think it's more palatable than saying you're going to suffer for two weeks. Circuit breaker sounds more scientific, more technical, like we know what we're doing. And the advantage of a circuit breaker is it's a, it's a two-week hard lockdown maybe more, three weeks, maybe. But the key is you tell people exactly how long it's going to be so they can plan. If you're a a store owner, for example, you know, well, I don't need to order any supplies for two weeks. I can give my employees furlough for exactly two weeks. I can save on this expenditure for exactly two weeks and know that I have to spend money again on on the third week. So that uh, is more amenable to people's lives and more saleable to most people. The um, thing about a circuit breaker, though, is it's meant to buy time. And the analogy I've been giving in media is it's like if you're treading water in the ocean and you, you just can't, you are got to drown, you're struggling. A helicopter shows up and that's the circuit breaker. The helicopter picks you up out of the water, lets you catch your breath, and then it drops you back in again. So you're back where you started, but you got more strength now because you got your breath. So it doesn't solve the problem, it just buys you time. Um, people say it flattens the curve. It doesn't flatten the curve. It just slows the growth of the curve. You know, it, it, and the idea is if you're, if your, uh, uh, contact tracing regime is overtaxed, if your hospitals are overflowing, this gives a bit of time. Probably, you know, cuts the number of cases down in half in that period. But again, the second you lift that circuit break, the cases go up again and you're back where you started pretty soon. Unless, You do something with that time. You do something. You Do what? Any number of things. Deploying public health assets, encouraging people to have fewer contacts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, circuit breakers remain on the table and I I suspect we're going to be using them in Ontario because they're an easier sell and people seem to think they're less economically painful. And I I question that, to be honest, but uh, I'm not an economist. I'll let the economists figure that out. That leaves us with suppression and mitigation. So mitigation is uh, essentially washing your hands, wearing a mask, just trying to reduce transmission where you can. It's kind of like give it up. Some places where they don't know how many cases they have, they uh, always wash their hands and hope for the best. So I've, I've painted mitigation in a bad light, but mitigation can be quite powerful if it is preceded by efforts to get the case numbers very low, and your mitigation attempts include keeping those numbers low. So in my opinion, mitigation can best serve us if it's preceded by a hard suppression. So I think a hard suppression followed by mitigation is a viable path forward. Some people call it maximum suppression. An uh, epidemiologist I, I really admire, uh, Devi Sridhar, Scotland has been advocating for maximum suppression in Scotland to get their cases down to zero for a while, and I think she's she's quite brilliant, and uh, um, I would take her advice seriously. So the way it would look is you lock down hard, unfortunately, for maybe a month. You know, if you do it well, it might take a month. It might take longer if you do it poorly. You get your cases not to zero. This isn't elimination. You don't get it to zero. You get it to like single digits. Per city, so double digits overall. But in that time you invest in extraordinary public health assets. What public health assets? Rapid testing, which you'll need for the borders. In a second I'll describe that. Great lab capacity for the testing, screening in workplaces, etc. Most importantly, backwards contact tracing. What is that? In the West, we do mostly forwards contact tracing. That's when we uh, you identify an infected person. You then figure out who then they contacted after they became infected and maybe infected themselves. So if you get their contacts, you can investigate and probably prevent them from spreading it on further. Fantastic. If you do it really well, um, some estimates say you can get 5, five to 15% more cases identified. Backwards contact tracing is when you get an infected person, you look backwards in their timeline to see where they were, which super spreading opportunities they were attending that likely is where they got it from. Maybe they went to a restaurant or church or bar or party or something. Then you go to that event and you saturate test everybody. That way you prevent them from infecting other people so some studies suggest that uh, you get if you do this uh, approach you get two or three times more case detection than you would otherwise this is what South Korea does and they're able to stay open right the Japanese criticize us as uh, looking at the trees and not the forest if we can find forest clusters we can prevent clusters from causing super spreading events and we're golden okay so uh, for backwards contact tracing you need some public buy-in. Um, to do it well, the tracers need to be able to track your credit card history, maybe your mobile phone data. Um, and we have a QR code system. So every business would have a QR code in the front. And to get in, you had to scan it with your mobile phone. And that creates an electronic log of everyone who's been there that lasts for about two weeks. So if anyone is infected and we track their, their history and they're at this event, that we know exactly who to contact in that log, and then it speeds things up pretty well. So again, it requires public compliance with this kind of invasion of privacy, unfortunately. But maybe we can do it to a lesser extent. So there are some places in Quebec and Ontario that do do backwards contact tracing when they can, but it's not part of official policy. I think backwards tracing should be the vanguard of a public health strategy going forward in Ontario. So heart suppression, get the case numbers down low deploy backwards tracing and a lot of testing. I didn't mention the third part of the mitigation strategy that's needed for the heart suppression mitigation strategy, and that is monitoring your borders. If we look at the Asian countries that have done well, they all have two things in common. One, they do case detection really well, and case detection is contact tracing and testing. The second thing they do is they monitor their borders extremely well. So they do not allow seeding events from entering their country. In Canada, two-thirds of travelers entering are quarantine-exempt. Did you know that? Uh, Understandably so. They're military, they're diplomats, or they're people delivering stuff that we need. But just because you're quarantine-exempt doesn't mean we can't investigate you to make sure you're not a seeder. And S-E-E-D-E-R, not C-E-D-A-R. They're not trees. So... And one way we can do that is to use our new rapid antigen tests, which aren't great tests, but they're good enough for this purpose. And you just make sure everyone gets a a rapid test when they enter the country every couple of days, because if if you get a false negative, you you won't get multiple false negatives if you retest. So we can do these things. That's how Australia and New Zealand manage. They monitor their borders. That's how Asian countries manage. Uruguay... um, they followed the mantra of acting early, acting hard. So they locked down early in the first side of cases, drove the cases to zero and invested in a national strategy for producing tests. They make their own tests and they have a lot of testing going on. So they do a similar thing. A poor country like Uruguay can do this. So those are the options on the table. Um, I don't advise anybody. I'm a nobody. So don't send me hate mail like I'm making the world worse. No one listens to me uh haven't got any powerful friends. I'm just saying from an analysis point of view, these are some of the options that are on the table. And I'm hoping that the decision makers are taking them seriously and balancing them against the economic pain and the psychological pain. But remember, there is a very bright light at the end of the tunnel. and That bright, bright light is vaccines. Vaccines are real. They're here. Many of them are coming. But that tunnel is long. It might be many months long. So buckle in. And what I want is for us to have a comfortable time as we wait for the vaccine to have penetration. I don't want us to panic, and to suffer. I don't want anyone to lose their jobs or their lives. So we can do this, people. Just take some vision and political will and public compliance. Thank you.